0: If you have a set of sermon notes, the scriptures are also in the notes, uh, or if you have your Bible, you can, you can turn to 2 Kings. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, you promised that your word is uh, profitable. Uh, show us where we've gone wrong, point us to the right way, to tell us how to get there. And so we claim that promise this morning. Ask for your spirit to enliven your word in our hearts. In the name of Jesus, Amen. It was about 850 B.C. Northern Europe was still covered by old-growth forests. In the Mediterranean, the Mycenaean culture had collapsed, while Greek civilization had yet to emerge, and the founding of Rome was still a century away. Across the globe in China, artisans of the Zhou dynasty were creating exquisite works in bronze. And in the Americas, the Olmecs, We're cultivating maize with an accurate calendar having 365 days per year in it. In the Fertile Crescent, Assyria was the major power. But the 12 tribes of Israel who were once strong and unified in their golden age under King David and King Solomon, they had now split into two much weaker nations. The northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. At this time in Jewish history, uh, the prophet Elisha ministered in the northern kingdom. Elisha was the successor to Elijah uh, with his home base at Mount Carmel. Okay? But he traveled throughout the land, preaching and teaching in various villages. His sojourns include Israel's capital city, Samaria, where he and his assistant Gehazi were well known, uh, both to King Joram and to all of his entourage. But Today's story opens at another regular stop on Elisha's circuit, a small town in the fertile Jezreel Valley called Shunem. The first three scenes in our story today each opens with the phrase, one day. That's to note that the day began like any other day. But by day's end, tiny Shunem would see amazing blessings. Come to meet great needs in that little town. Okay? Scene one. A noble woman gives back. Oh, I should have said Second Kings 4, 8 to 10.
1: One day, Elisha came to Shunem, where a wealthy noble woman lived, who had urged him to stop and eat. Thus, whenever he passed that way, he would turn in there for a meal. So the woman said to her husband, Behold now, I know that this is a holy man of God who is continually passing our way. Let us make a small room on the roof with walls and put there for him a bed, a table, a stool, and a lamp so that whenever he comes to us, he can go in and rest.
0: The Hebrew text calls the woman a gadawl. That means someone who is wealthy and very influential. And one day she urged Elisha to stop by for a dinner. And thereafter, whenever he was in Shunem, he always made it his habit to stop at her home for a meal. But the woman decided that meals were not enough. She asked her husband. Well, no, not really. She ordered her husband. <laughs> Let's build a room for Elisha. He, of course, complied. And after that, Elisha often paused at her home to study, to rest, and to pray. Uh, Grace and peace occasionally meets with new perfect peace. A Baptist church is north of Delmore. And at one of those meetings we were discussing racial inequity. And I was feeling pretty guilty. And so I said, what am I supposed to do with the recognition that I've benefited from white privilege? And one of their members, book, he said, well, you shouldn't feel guilty about it. Use the advantage you have to make a difference. This woman felt she should make a difference. She felt she should use her status in the community as a gift from God to be used for good. Uh, She wanted to be a righteous person, someone who did acts of kindness as God commanded us in the Torah. Okay. Also on Jewish holy days, she would go to Mount Carmel and worship there with Elisha. Her faith was very important to her. Elisha had enabled her to exercise that faith more fully, and so this holy man of God, as she calls him, filled a special place in her heart. She wanted to honor him with something, something to aid his ministry, a refuge where he could be refreshed. The New Testament encourages us to have this same attitude. First Timothy five seventeen. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. The term honor here in Timothy includes financial support. So we could reasonably interpret this passage to say, consider the pastors who work with you to be worth twice what you're paying them. If I invite a pastor to lunch... And he tries to pick up the tab. I say, no, 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 I'm paying for lunch. And usually they'll say, no, 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 you can't do that. And I always say, would the Shunammite woman have allowed Elisha to pay for his lunch? And they almost always answer, Kurt especially, I can't argue with that logic. <laughs> right?" And it's that logic that sets the stage for what's about to transpire in tiny Shunamm. And so our story continues one day after Elisha had climbed that outside staircase up to his little rooftop apartment where he was relaxing. Scene two, everything's fine. Second Kings four, 11 to 13.
1: One day, Elisha came by and he turned into his chamber and rested there. And he said to Gehazi, his servant, call the Shunammite. When Gehazi had called her, she stood before Elisha. And Elisha said to Gehazi, say now to her. See, you have taken all this trouble for us. What is to be done for you? Would you have a word spoken on your behalf to the king or to the commander of the army? And she answered him, I want nothing. I dwell among my own people.
0: So Elijah felt he ought to do something to repay the Shunammites' kind- kindness. And so he requested her to come up to his room. So he could inquire as to the desires of her heart. And then he spoke to her through Gehazi. Now we just presume that that was the proper etiquette in those days for a prophet like Elijah to speak to a, no, a noble woman. So what did she tell Elisha that she needed? Her answer is very revealing. She said, I don't need anything. No, she was rich and Elisha was poor so that might make sense but... Elisha was close friends with King Joram. He could have asked for her taxes to be lowered. He could have asked for a stronger military presence to be sent to Shunem to protect her, her crops, and her friends from the Assyrians who were always attacking him. But her answer implies, I'm just fine right here with my people in my little town. We don't need any king coming in and messing with us in our affairs. This rich and powerful woman felt pretty self-sufficient. She was getting along quite well, thank you very much, and needed nothing from anyone. But she, like us, would soon discover that such an attitude can have its shortcomings. Sometimes I get the notion that I'm self-sufficient. At those times during prayer group, a Phyllis or Steve might say, Dave, do you have anything we can pray for? No, not really. I'm fine. I don't don't need anything, you know. But, of course, I'm not fine. And I don't have everything under control. And neither did this noble woman. The name Gehazi means one who sees. And although Elisha was the prophet, it was Gehazi who saw into the woman's heart. He saw that everything was not just fine. He realized that this woman was hurting on the inside. So let's continue. 2 Kings 4, 14 to 17.
1: And Elisha said, What then is to be done for her? And Gehazi answered, Well, she has no son, and her husband is old. And Elisha said, Call her. And then Gehazi had called her. She stood in the doorway, and Elisha told her, At this season, about this time next year, you shall embrace a son. And she said, No, my lord, O man of God, do not lie to your servant. But the woman conceived, and she bore a son about that time the following spring. So Elisha, as Elisha had said to her.
0: So after the woman declined Elisha's offer, he just couldn't stop thinking about her. He agonized. There must be something we can do for her. And it seems that Elisha's servant Kahasi had discerned something. Maybe he learned this from, since he was Elisha's servant, he might have been talking to her servant and figured it out. Or maybe God just revealed it to him. But somehow, he told Elisha, I think that she wants a child. And then, as a not so subtle hint that this might require a miracle, he says... And her husband's old. (laughs) Elisha said, aha. A miracle is exactly what this requires. And so the prophet called the woman back up. This time, he spoke to her directly. This was personal. He said, by next time this year, next year, this time next year, you will have a son. Now, people like me who put up a happy facade and say, everything's fine, everything is all right. We sometimes exhibit passive-aggressive behavior and blow up when things don't turn out to be just fine. And that might be what happened here, because this woman lashed out at Elisha. Don't lie to me! I do not appreciate being messed with. Elisha's word was really from the Lord. And by that time next year, she did have a son. There's a pattern I've seen in my life. Maybe you've seen it too. It begins with a great need. And then this need is met in some miraculous way that's just wonderful. But then my hopes are smashed and they're dashed. Some unexpected event comes up. And the whole miracle I thought had happened completely dissolves away. We arrive at scene three, hopes dashed. It also begins with the phrase, one day. Second Kings four, 18 to 20.
1: One day, when the child had grown, he went out to his father who was among the reapers. Well, there he said to his father, Oh, my head, my head. The father said to his servant, carry him to his mother. And when he had lifted him and brought him to his mother, the child lay on her lap till noon and then died.
0: The boy was about four or five years old when he went out in the fields to help his father supervise the workers. Um, Evidently, it was a very hot day, and the father had not ensured his son was properly hydrated for the Lad complained of a severe headache and then fainted, a very strong indication of heat stroke. The child's father seems annoyed by this inconvenience, and he orders one of his servants take him back to his mother. I can understand what the man perhaps was thinking. He was very busy trying to make a living for his family. He probably thought, since he was providing their material needs for them, what what more could they want from him? I mean... He wasn't very good at these touchy-feely things like being a dad, right? He had his son taken back home, failing to notice the child was in distress with an extremely high fever. It is just heart-wrenching to imagine this woman holding her son in her arms for maybe hours until he died in her embrace. So what then? 2 Kings 4,
1: 21-23. And she went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God, shut the door behind her, and went out, leaving the boy there. Then she called to her husband and said, Send me one of the servants and one of the donkeys, that I may quickly go to the man of God and come back again. And her husband said, Why will you go to him today? It is neither new moon nor Sabbath. And she said, All is well, Shemel. She got... Her the serv he got her the servant and the donkey.
0: So the Shunammite calmly carries the boy upstairs, she lays him on Elisha's bed, she leaves his lifeless body there, closing the door behind her, and then issues a call to her husband, asking him to send her a donkey and a servant she can go see Elisha at Mount Carmel. Inexplicably Her husband does not ask anything about the sun. How's he doing? Is he okay? All he does is cross-examines her as to why you're going to Mount Carmel. It's not a new moon. It's not a holiday. What's, What's going on here? Her answer to him is in keeping with her character. It's shalom, implying, don't worry about it. I've got it under control. Get the donkey. He does. We now come to scene four. Rushing for help. 2 Kings 4, 24 to 26.
1: Then she settled the donkey and said to her servant, Urge the animal on. Do not slacken the pace for me unless I tell you. So she set out and came to the man of God at Mount Carmel, 20 miles from Shunem. When the man of God saw her coming, he said to Gehazi, his servant, Look, there is a Shunemite. Run at once and meet her and say, Is all well with you? Is all well with your husband? Is all well with your child? Gehazi did this, and she answered, All is well. Shalom.
0: For once in her life, the noble woman realized she did not have it all under control. Only God can help her. So the trek to Mount Carmel is an arduous journey. It's two to three hours by the donkey. And this was the afternoon of an extremely hot day. But she went full speed. Elisha noticed her coming at a rapid pace, and he sent out the younger Gehazi to find out what's going on. But her answer to Gehazi is her standard Shalom, peace, everything's fine. Second Kings four, twenty-seven
1: to twenty-nine. When she came to the mountain to the man of God, she caught hold of his feet, and Gehazi came to push her away. But the man of God said, No, leave her alone, for she is in bitter distress. But the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me. Then she said to Elisha, Did I ever ask my Lord for a son? Did I not say, Do not deceive me? He said to Gehazi, Gird up your loins and take my staff in your hands and go in haste. If you meet anyone, do not greet him. And if anyone greets you, do not reply. And lay my staff on the face of the child.
0: I think her pain had mounted during that long trip to Mount Carmel. And when she gets there, her passive aggressive behavior again comes out. She grabs Elisha and accuses him I warned you not to lie to me. Gehazi is startled by this attack. Uh, he, she told him shalom. He thought everything was just fine. Um, he just did not sense her distress. But Elisha was a little more responsive. He immediately told Gehazi to cinch up his robe, right, grab it up, pull it up, get ready. Get ready for fast running because he was needed to head back to where the boy was to lay the prophet's staff across the boy's face. It's not clear if Elisha knew the boy was actually dead or thought he was sick. It's not clear because the woman never said explicitly, My son's dead. And Elisha himself tells us that God had not revealed it to him. But he knows something's wrong, and so with the boy, so he sends Gehazi on his head. But the mother knew her son was dead. And she demands of Elisha that he come with her. She's not going back without him. And so she says, come with me. And he goes to the place where her son lies dead, 2 Kings 4, 30 and 31.
1: The mother of the child said, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not go back without you. So Elisha arose and followed her. Gehazi went ahead and laid Elisha's staff on the face of the child, but there was no sound or sign of life. Then he returned to meet Elisha and told him, The child has not awakened.
0: There's something else I've seen in my life besides hopes dashed. I've also seen dashed hopes. Restored.
1: When Elisha came to the room, he looked in and saw the child on his bed lying dead. So he went in with Gehazi, shut the door behind the two of them, and prayed to the Lord. When he went over and laid on the child, putting his mouth on the boy's mouth, his eyes on the boy's eyes, and his hands on the boy's hands, as he stretched himself upon the child's flesh, the flesh became warm. Then Elisha got up and walked back and forth in the room one time. After that, he went and stretched himself upon the boy again. At this, the child sneezed seven times and then opened his eyes. Elisha then commanded Gehazi and said, "Call the Shunammite." So he called her, and when she came to him, he said, "Pick up your son." She came and fell at Elisha's feet, bowing to the ground. Then she picked up her son and went out.
0: Elisha's uh, actions here sort of conjure up. The images of modern CPR, but the boy had been dead for at least six hours, so CPR is not the explanation. The intricate description of this, how Elisha touched the boy, the details of how many times Elisha walked back and forth, and then that marvelous seven sneezes, right? This has all the earmarks of an eyewitness account of a true miracle that God performed here. Now, Not every tragedy ends in a fantastic way like this, but the narrative nonetheless illustrates that the rough areas of our life have redeeming value. We don't have to say that everything is just fine and pretend that nothing's wrong. We can admit that we need help from the Lord, and we need help from others. But in this case, the boy was raised to life, and... Everyone lived happily ever after. No, not quite. The Bible depicts life as it really is. Not as we sometimes wish it would be. There would be some more rough heartaches for this little family. Not long after the child had been revived, Elisha came by to warn the woman of an impending famine. People would die. The Shunammite and her son would have to uproot and move. And this introduces scene five, where we do not want to go. 2 Kings 8, 1 and 2.
1: Now Elisha said to the woman, whose son he had restored to life, Arise and depart with your household and sojourn wherever you can. For the Lord has called for a famine, and it will come upon the land for seven years. So the woman arose and did according to the word of the man of God. She went with her household and sojourned in the land of the Philistines for seven years.
0: The woman had once told Elisha, I need nothing. I dwell among my own people. Ironically, now she had to leave those people and go where she did not want to go. She and her son gathered up some of their servants. They took along some cash, and they fled to Philistia. We, too, are often forced to go where we do not want to go. A great example, I think, is the Apostle Peter. At one time in his life, he felt very self-sufficient, but his denials of Christ shattered that myth in his life. And later, by the sea, Jesus taught Peter about the true source of our strength. John 21, 18-19. As I get older, this verse becomes more and more powerful to me. Jesus said to Peter, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted to go. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you. And take you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death Peter was to glorify God. And after saying this, Jesus told Peter, follow me. After Peter grew old, there did indeed come a day when someone would dress him and take him out to be crucified for his faith in Christ. And the reality is, unless the Lord comes first, all of us will die. It doesn't matter how much you exercise. It doesn't matter how many vitamins you take. It doesn't matter what health foods you eat. Death is inevitable. There is no escaping it. And there's nothing that speaks so strongly to the fact that we are not in control as does death. And the very aging process reinforces this lesson. It brings us face to face with the sobering reality that we are not self-sufficient. But there is comfort. When Paul was uh, suffering from a debilitating disease, God came to him. First, 2 Corinthians 12, 19, God said, My grace is sufficient for you. That's why the Lord told Peter by the sea, Follow me. Jesus is the only place we can find the grace to go through the insufficiencies that we have in life and in death. Shunem is Hebrew for she knows. And by the grace of God, this woman, our Shunemite, would learn to know the grace of God. There is just so much to love about her. I mean, she was generous. She was strong. And she would grow into a strong woman who was not ashamed to ask others for help. And who knew that she had to rely upon God. Let's fast-forward this story seven years to 2 Kings
1: 8.3. At the end of the seven years, when the woman returned from the land of the Philistines, she went to appeal to the king for her house and land.
0: There's a lot packed into that, that little verse. Evidently, shortly before she and her family fled to Philistia, or maybe it was while they were there, The woman's husband died. Now, how devastating is this? You have the fear and anxiety of living in exile for seven years away from your home, away from your family, and that's compounded by the pain and heartache of the loss of her husband. And then, to even further multiply her sorrows, when she at last returned to Tiny Shunem, She discovered that someone had seized her land, was living in their house, and that he and his cronies were tilling their soil and selling the crops. In Israel, land was never truly sold. It was a legacy for every family. It was leased. And so after she returned from the Philistines, this land legally belonged to her and to her son. Okay? But when she went and asked for her property to come back, the interloper smirked and said, Who's going to make me? You and your little boy? (laughs) So, being the strong woman she was, she's not giving up without a fight. This verse says she headed to the capital, to Samaria, to seek an audience with the king, hoping he might return her family's property. There's more irony here. At one time, Elisha said, would you like me to say something to the king on your behalf? And she said, no, I don't need the king. (laughs) Now she does need the king. (laughs) And she's learned a few things in these past seven years, and she knows that's what's going to take. She also needs the Lord, who unbeknownst to her, at the exact instant that she is entering the royal palace, God is advocating on her behalf to the king. We come to scene six. Our strength is in the Lord. 2 Kings 8, 4-6. to six.
1: Now the king happened to be talking with Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, saying, Tell me all the great things that Elisha has done. And just as Gehazi came to the account of how Elisha had restored the dead to life, At that very moment, the woman whose son he had restored to life came into the king's presence to appeal for her house and her land. And Gehazi exclaimed, My lord, O king, here is the woman, and here is her son, whom Elijah restored to life. And when the king asked the woman, she told him it was so.
0: So just as Gehazi is regaling the king with how Elisha brought a woman's son back to life, that very woman joins the queue of those who were in line to petition the king for things. And Gehazi says, oh king, you're not going to believe this. That's her. That's her right there. And that's her son with her. The king was a little skeptical, but he called the woman to the head of the line and she checked it out. And her story exactly matched Gehazi. God's timing is perfect. Let me give you an example. Um, Right here from Grace and Peace. Eight years ago, Neil Das joined our prayer group. So we said, you know, tell us your story. We want to hear your story. So he told us that his uh, future mother in 1961 was a nurse here in St. Louis. And she fell in love with a Pakistani Christian, but he had to go back home. So she packed all her stuff in drums, boarded a ship, and sailed to Pakistan to join him. (laughs) They were married there, they had meaningful careers, they had children, including Neil. Neil went to high school in Pakistan, and then they moved back to America, but his mother died, just tragically shortly thereafter. Uh, Neil finished high school here, then his dad died, and finally Neil found his way to grace and peace. That was his story. We went around the circle. We each told our stories. The last person in the circle was Amy Kennedy, sitting right to Neil's right. She turned to him and said, I think I knew your mother. Was her name Bodhi? Neil said, yes, her name was Bodhi. She was in a prayer group, a Bible study for nurses that we were in together. When she went to Pakistan, we prayed for her. We prayed she would have a Christian family. You're here tonight. You're the answer to our prayers. God's perfect timing had brought Neil and Amy Kennedy right together. Um, he, he decided Grace and Peace was probably the place he ought to be. Right? That was his his church here, and that's the kind of timing that God gave to this noble woman. Okay. After she and her her son was about 12 years old at this time, and After she and her son had a nice, great talk with the king, the king decided to rule on their complaint. And this brings us to scene seven, when the king becomes your advocate, 2 Kings 8, 6.
1: The king then appointed an official to be in charge of processing the woman's case, processing the woman's case, telling him, restore all that was hers together with all the produce of the land. From that day from the day that she left the land until now.
0: Her lost income and property would be restored, including that little house with the upstairs room for Eli- Elisha. See, the villain had tried to cheat a widow and a fatherless child, but God himself had argued their case. Proverbs 23, 10 and 11, and Proverbs fifteen twenty-five: Do not seize the fields of the fatherless, for their Redeemer is mighty. He will plead their case against you, and the Lord protects the property of widows. The next time the woman rode into Shunem and requested her land back, and the interloper said, who's going to make me? She and her son would point to the nearby hill and say, oh, I believe they will where stood a platoon of the royal guard, swords gleaming in the sunlight. After that, did not go well for the thief. But before we gloat too much over the fate of the land grabber, we need to ask ourselves, when we stand before the judgment, what sins will we have to give an account of? And who will be the advocate who pleads our case for us? And the answer is found in today's story. Because Elisha is a type of the Messiah. The woman and her son represent us. And Gehazi is symbolic of the Holy Spirit. How does this all play out? Well, consider Gehazi. His name means the one who sees. And scripture connects that meaning of his name with the spirit of the Messiah. Thus making Gehazi symbolic of the Holy Spirit. Revelation 5, 6. The Lamb, that is the Messiah, had seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out to see all the earth. In the account we read today, recall the woman had been unable to voice her need for a child. But Gehazi saw into her heart, and he brought that need to Elisha. And then Elisha spoke encouragement to the woman through Gehazi. Likewise for us. The Spirit sees our needs and expresses them to the Lord. And Jesus speaks to us, encouraging words through the Holy Spirit. Romans 8.26 The Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So just as Elisha through Gehazi met the Shunammites' needs, Jesus through the Spirit meets ours. Elisha is a type of the Messiah in uh, in other ways. For example, when the Shunammite's son lie dead, Elisha sent Gehazi on ahead for comfort, but then he joined the woman, went with her to the place where her dreams were dead, and she brought that son back to life. Same way Jesus hears our cry for help, sends the Holy Spirit to where our dreams lie dead, and then comes to come comfort us. But I think... The most powerful application of this analogy comes from what we mentioned in the latter part of the story. That is the question of who will be our advocate when we stand before the throne. Okay. Recall that Elisha once offered to say a word to the king on behalf of the woman. And this was realized when Gehazi, as the voice of Elijah, spoke to the king and said, yes, this indeed is her son. Who was raised from the dead and he therefore is the rightful heir to this land that she's asking for. In the same way Jesus as our advocate speaks through the spirit to the father saying these are mine. I bore their sins on the cross. When I arose from the dead they arose with me. The father then declares that we are his true children risen from the dead. The valid heirs of an inheritance that he will provide for us. Um, I put together First John 2, 2, Ephesians 2, 16, and 18, and Romans 8, 16, 17, and 27 into a little collage here. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the payment for our sins and for the sins of the world. We were raised up together with the Messiah, who reconciles us to God by the cross through him. We have access by one Spirit to the Father. For the Spirit himself bears witness that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with the Messiah. And the Father who searches hearts knows the mind of the Spirit. For the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. You see, Satan entered the fields of those he thought were fatherless. But to his chagrin, he discovered that we actually have a father. We have a redeemer. We have an advocate. Okay. Therefore, when Satan accuses us before God and says, Who could possibly redeem these sinners from my hands? Then we can point to Calvary, to the King of kings and Lord of lords, the one brandishing the gleaming swords. We can declare, Oh, we believe. He will, because he died for our sins. The first three scenes today all open with a little phrase, one day. For each started out like any other day, but ended with an unexpected blessing. This might be such a day for you. So I feel compelled to ask this question. When you stand before the final judgment, before the king of the universe... And Jesus says, may I speak to the king on your behalf? Will you say, no, I'm self-sufficient. I don't need anything. I'll stand before God on my own merits. Or will your answer be, Lord, I'm a sinner. I'm completely insufficient. Yes. Please advocate for me on your behalf to the king. Only that second answer leads to eternal life, for only Jesus is truly sufficient to redeem us, and he invites us to follow him.